So this week's podcast is on skin and soft tissue infections. And we're mostly going to be focusing on cellulitis. So our objectives for the podcast, there are five, are one, to describe the clinical presentation of cellulitis, two, to identify the usual pathogens implicated in cellulitis, three, to describe red flag features concerning for necrotizing soft tissue infection, four, to rationalize empiric therapy selection for mild, moderate, and severe cellulitis, and five, to apply knowledge of SSTIs to manage a patient presenting with new cutaneous findings. So today we're going to be talking about skin and soft tissue infections, or SSTIs. It is helpful to mentally subdivide skin and soft tissue infections as purulent, which includes carbuncles, furuncles, and abscesses, or non-purulent, which includes erysipelas, cellulitis, or necrotizing infection. Non-purulent SSTIs are most frequently caused by streptococcus, and purulent SSTIs are more commonly caused by staph aureus, including MRSA. Today we'll focus on non-purulent skin and soft tissue infections, specifically cellulitis, and we'll also talk about some distinguishing features of necrotizing infections. Anytime we're seeing a patient with suspected cellulitis, necrotizing infection is important to rule out since patients deteriorate rapidly and management is different. To visualize skin and soft tissue infections properly, we need to remember some of the relevant anatomy. So we know most of our superficial layer of the skin is the protective outer layer known as the epidermis. Deep to that, we have the dermis, which contains the vasculature and lymphatics. Deep to the dermis is the subcutaneous fat and tissue, and then deep to that is the muscle. Cellulitis is an infection of the dermis and subcutaneous fat and tissue, so deeper than the epidermis, but not as deep as the muscle. The underlying cause of cellulitis is thought to be bacterial translocation through the epidermis when the barrier is compromised. And this translocation is what produces the inflammatory response in the vascularized dermis, producing the observed clinical features. These clinical features include poorly demarcated erythema, swelling, pain, and warmth. A helpful acronym for the clinical presentation of cellulitis is the word cellulitis itself. The C stands for cellulitis history, the strongest predicting factor of subsequent episodes. E for edema and erythema. L for local warmth. L for lymphangitis, red streaking that tracks along the lymphatic system. U for unilateral. L for leukocytosis. I for injury, which is a strong predisposing factor. T for tender. I for instant onset. And S for systemic signs. So these features can help us distinguish cellulitis from its non-infectious and infectious mimickers, of which there are many. Not all of these findings will always be present. For instance, systemic signs will usually be absent in mild cellulitis, and in many patients there may be no associated lymphangitis. But it is a helpful mnemonic for some of the distinguishing features. Yes, I think in particular it's worth drawing attention to the U and the second I. Cellulitis is almost always unilateral, and a diagnosis of bilateral cellulitis always deserves questioning. It happens, but it's quite rare. Instant onset is worth commenting on too. Unlike venous stasis dermatitis, which can produce an outer appearance like cellulitis, cellulitis is most commonly an infection that onsets acutely. Okay, so question. Which of the following patient descriptions are consistent with cellulitis? Choose all that apply. A. A 32-year-old male cuts himself on a clamshell. Three days later, he presents to hospital with erythema to the injured leg with associated heat, pain, and swelling extending up from his foot to his mid-shin. B. An 89-year-old diabetic patient presents with chronic wound over their right medial malleolus with skin breakdown and visible bleeding. C. A 63-year-old patient presents with ongoing bilateral erythema, swelling, and discoloration to his lower limbs. He describes discomfort and irritation to the area. And D. A 45-year-old with a history of intravenous drug use presents with increasing redness, pain, and warmth to their right arm. She reports chills and sweats over the last two days. Okay, so to answer this, let's think to our cellulitis acronym. Cellulitis history, edema, erythema, local warmth, lymphangitis, unilateral, 
leukocytosis, injury, tender, instant onset, and systemic signs. And that's a lot of symptoms, but some are more obvious than others. So let's start by looking at unilateral, instant onset, erythema, and tenderness. We can rule out patient B, the 89-year-old, because she doesn't sound like she has features of cellulitis. She sounds like she has a wound, but none of the other associated clinical features. And if we look at patient C, he has bilateral symptoms, and it doesn't sound like this is instant onset. It sounds kind of more chronic. So this leaves us with patient A and D. Patient D has systemic features of infection and concordant localizing symptoms. Patient A has localized symptoms of cellulitis and an injury preceding the event that compromised his epidermal barrier. So our two patients with cellulitis are patient A and patient D. And these patients actually highlight some of the risk factors for cellulitis. Risk factors for cellulitis include anything that disrupts the normal host response that would ordinarily be present to prevent bacterial invasion into the dermis. This includes trauma, like patient A, who cut himself on a clamshell, and patient D, who uses intravenous drugs. Other risk factors include systemic immunodeficiencies, like end-stage liver disease, HIV, diabetes, primary immunodeficiencies, and being a transplant recipient on immunosuppressives. There are also multiple local defects that can predispose patients to cellulitis, and these include anything causing lymphatic disruption, like lymphedema or lymph node resection, which is a strong predisposing factor, peripheral arterial disease, chronic venous stasis, fungal infections of adjacent regions, for example, toenail webbing, and chronic ulcers. This list isn't exhaustive, but just recall that anything producing systemic or local defects in host defenses can predispose to cellulitis. Okay, now the microbiology. If you're going to remember only one thing, remember gram-positives. Gram-negative cellulitis is very uncommon in cellulitis that isn't associated with a chronic wound. Usually we can't obtain local cultures for cellulitis unless there is an adjacent ulcer, which we can culture to help us direct therapy, as long as the cultures are done properly. This is going to be discussed in Diabetic Foot Infection Podcast. But we don't really need cultures, because for cellulitis of intact skin, when there is no adjacent chronic ulcer, the cause is usually beta-hemolytic streptococci, and possibly MSSA. And just a quick refresher, beta-hemolytic streptococci are our classic Lansfield group strep, group A, group C, and group G strep. These organisms are universally susceptible to penicillin and beta-lactams. Beta-hemolytic, beta-lactams. Easy enough to remember. Some clinical features point even more strongly to streptococcus as the underlying cause. These are lymphangitis, lymph nodes palpable on exam, and the presence of lymphedema. Right. Streptococci love lymph, and patients with lymphedema have a very difficult time eradicating streptococci. That's one of the reasons lymphatic disruption is one of the biggest risk factors for cellulitis. So this leads us into when we need to cover staphylococcus, which is a bit controversial. There is actually a recent good review article on this, and if you want to take a look, it's attached in the references to this podcast. Staphylococcus is often not involved in non-period SSTIs, and we have a lot of observational data showing that with cure with regimens that don't cover staphylococcus are as high as 80%. But we don't have any head-to-head trials comparing cure rates with patients on penicillin or amoxicillin to those on regimens that would cover MSSA. And while beta-hemolytic strep is a far more common cause, there is data showing that even with non-purulent cellulitis, staph aureus is a relevant pathogen to consider. Right. So in terms of when to cover staph aureus, in mild disease, usually we can just cover beta-hemolytic strep. In moderate disease, truthfully, a lot comes down to practitioner experience and preference. Many of these cases don't require staph aureus coverage, but it's common in practice if a patient is being admitted to hospital to see cefazolin used which will cover both our MSSA and our beta-hemolytic strep, so our group ACG strep. The scenario where we absolutely would cover staph aureus is in severe non-purulent SSTIs, so severe cellulitis or necrotizing soft tissue infection. This is not only because it's more likely to be involved, but also because missing staphylococcus in patients who are so unwell has far more implications than missing coverage in a stable patient. So then, to know when to cover staphylococcus, we need to be able to identify whether a cellulitis is mild, moderate, or severe. 
The local appearance of cellulitis can be similar regardless of whether it is mild, moderate, or severe, though generally there will be more pronounced local findings with increasing severity of disease. But really, severity of cellulitis is defined most easily by the severity of the accompanying systemic infectious features. The systemic features and the speed of spread are really what helps us distinguish mild from moderate and from severe cellulitis. In mild cellulitis, there are no accompanying systemic findings, only local findings, and expansion of erythema is very slow. Moderate cellulitis does have accompanying systemic infectious features, but the patient is hemodynamically stable, and there's no rapid spread of the local clinical findings like erythema and edema. In severe cellulitis, we have pronounced systemic features of infection with hemodynamic compromise, pronounced pain, and there may be rapid spread. And it's severe cellulitis where we would definitely cover staphylococcus. Given the urgent clinical picture of severe cellulitis, that is the situation in which we cover more broadly, with piptazo and vancomycin, to cover more diverse organisms, and even MRSA empirically, while awaiting blood culture results and monitoring clinical response. And some of that is because severe cellulitis, with rapid spread, can make it difficult to discern from necrotizing infection. And any time we have rapid spread, we need to cover broadly while we rule out necrotizing infection. Necrotizing infection can be polymicrobial, or could involve more unusual pathogens than a normal cellulitis. At least ruling out necrotizing infection is simpler than it sounds, because really, the way we rule out necrotizing infection is we consult a surgeon. Because when we have an actual concern for necrotizing infection, this is a life or limb situation. But we need to know when a surgical consult may be indicated. Clinical features that would be concerning for NSTI and merit a surgical consult would be purplish discoloration to the tissue due to tissue infarction, the presence of purple bullae, gas in the tissue, but note that the absence of gas does not rule out necrotizing infection, increasing lactic acidosis, because again this points to tissue infarction and death, pain disproportionate to physical findings, edema that extends beyond the margin of erythema, and rapid progression. Rapid progression is especially a red flag if it occurs when on antibiotics. And in hospital, you'll see nursing staff draw a line on the patient's skin around the erythema. This is to observe expansion. And the reason these features point more probably to necrotizing infection as opposed to severe cellulitis relates to the underlying pathophysiology of these two distinct infectious processes. We've discussed the mechanism of infection of cellulitis, bacterial translocation from superficial to deep spread with associated inflammatory response in the dermis. Necrotizing infections differ fundamentally as they're toxin-mediated and affect even the myofascial and deeper layers as compared to cellulitis. Streptococcus, group A, C, or G, as well as Staph aureus, Vibrio, Clostridial species, and more, can produce exotoxins that cause massive inflammatory response, local coagulation in the small vessels, and occlusion of vasculature. This produces tissue ischemia and infarction. So it's the deep tissues that are impacted first, and the necrosis spreads from deep to superficial. This explains why the pain experienced by the patient is often disproportionate to physical findings, the deep tissue is impacted initially more so than the superficial tissue that we can actually see. It also explains the other characteristic features that would make us concerned for NSTI, like the purplish discoloration, purple bullae, increasing lactic acidosis, and other features pointing to tissue infarction. This underlying pathophysiology explains why we need STAT surgical involvement. By the time the necrosis is producing clinical symptoms, the toxin effect has been present for sufficiently long that regardless of if we give antibiotics to kill the organism producing the toxin, we're not going to get the infection under control in time to stop the progression secondary to the toxins, nor will we mediate the necrosis already present. This is a surgical issue, and we need STAT surgical consultation. So discussing type 1, polymicrobial, and type 2, monomicrobial, necrotizing soft tissue infections is beyond the scope of this podcast, but I think that we should quickly make particular mention of type 1 NSTI. Type 1 polymicrobial NSTI is well documented, especially of the oral and genital regions, but in other regions as well. 
Accordingly, when we suspect NSTI, we cover broadly with vancomycin and piptazo because we know that a significant subset of necrotizing infections can be polymicrobial. We also add clindamycin to the regimen for toxin inhibition and eagle effect, aka inoculum effect. Clindamycin's role in this setting is really predominantly for toxin inhibition because the toxins are producing so much of the pathology. An eagle effect, which is basically that in high inoculum infections, some of the bacteria aren't really growing and dividing rapidly and are metabolically at rest. Since this means beta-lactams and cell wall active agents are not going to be as effective, we use clindamycin because it acts intracellularly on the ribosomes, so it doesn't rely on the bacteria to be rapidly dividing to be effective. Okay, quick question. Which of the following would most concern you for a potential necrotizing infection and necessitate consideration for a STAT surgical consult? 1. A 53-year-old patient who presents with severe pain, 10 out of 10, redness, edema that extends beyond the border of erythema, and all expanding several centimeters over the past day, despite being on home cephalexin. Imaging shows no gas in the tissue, but the patient says the tissue is beginning to look more darkly discolored than previous, purplish and dusky. Two, a 71-year-old with pain, erythema, edema to the right lower limb. Pain has been progressing over the past 24 hours despite effective antibiotic treatment. There's no expansion in redness or edema. Three, A 41-year-old female with a history of intravenous drug use who presents with significant erythema and edema that has spread up her right arm extending from the antecubital fossa to the shoulder over the past four days. She describes her pain as 5 out of 10. Okay, so our stems don't give us any vitals or labs, so we need to use the limited features presented to find any red flags. Let's look at the minimal info provided to identify our local red flag features. Rapid progression on antibiotics, purplish bullet and discoloration, edema expanding beyond the border of erythema, and pain disproportionate to physical findings. Patient 1 has some concerning features, progression on antibiotics, and progression that sounds fairly significant, dark discoloration, and severe pain. There's no gas in the tissue, but the absence of gas in tissue is not reassuring. Gas in the tissue is a helpful positive finding, but absence of gas does not rule out necrotizing infection. This is a patient in whom we would consider stat surgical consultation. Okay, what about patient 2? Patient 2 has symptoms of cellulitis with progressing pain, but no progression in redness or edema, no duskiness, so we don't seem to have any red flag features. From the brief description, we don't have any sense of urgency to obtain stat surgical consultation. We would monitor. Then patient 3. Patient 3 has features suggestive of cellulitis and risk factors for it, such as intravenous drug use. The redness is expanding, but over four days. This isn't rapid expansion. The pain is not sounding as though it's disproportionate to the physical appearance. So we really don't have any red flag features for necrotizing soft tissue infection, and we don't have an impetus to obtain a stat surgical consult. Finally, like always, we will end the podcast with a case. Mr. A.G. is a 68-year-old male with a history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, NSTEMI, and peripheral arterial disease. He presents to emerge with a two-day history of 6 out of 10 pain and erythema to his left lower limb up to just below his knee. He does not recall injuring his leg. He has some non-pitting edema that is most pronounced in the ankle and foot region, but he does also have some swelling up to the margin of the erythema. He has a few superficial blisters you observe, with serous fluid draining out of them, but no pus and no purple bullet. On exam, he has enlarged inguinal lymph nodes and an area of red streaking up his thigh, despite his thigh otherwise not being involved in the infection. His left leg is significantly warmer than the contralateral side. He does have a history of onychomycosis and appears to have intertrigo in his toe webbing. His past medical history is as described already. For his vitals, his temp is 38.8, 
his heart rate is 110, his blood pressure is 131 over 85, and his respirate is 21. For his labs, his serum creatinine is 110, his lights are normal, his lactate is 1.2, and his CRP is 271, and he has a CK of 210. His white blood cells are 18.1, with his neutrophils at 15.6. His hemoglobin and platelets are within normal limits. So to summarize, we have a middle-aged male patient presenting with acute onset unilateral pain, erythema, lymphangitis, and edema to his left lower extremity. There's no associated purulence. Let's walk through our top three differential diagnoses for this presentation. And like always, the clinical decision-making matrix for our top three diagnoses is attached as a handout for anyone who likes to have a visual. So we have a fever and elevated inflammatory markers, and what sounds like a fairly acute onset. So chronic conditions that mimic soft tissue infections are of less concern. He has a history of peripheral arterial disease, but his described symptoms are unilateral. So I would say our top three diagnoses would be NSTI, cellulitis, and perhaps DVT. Let's start with NSTI, necrotizing soft tissue infection, since it's always important to rule out NSTI when we have a patient presenting with possible skin and soft tissue infection. Remember, an NSTI is a surgical emergency. Risk factors for necrotizing infections include mucosal compromise, systemic immunodeficiency, or impaired local defenses like peripheral arterial disease, lymphedema, or trauma. Our patient does have a history of peripheral arterial disease. NSTIs are acute infections. They tend to onset quickly and can deteriorate within hours. Our patient has had significant pain for two days, which could possibly be in keeping with NSTI. With respect to concordant clinical features, our patient has several, including fever, elevated inflammatory markers, along with the described erythema, edema, lymphangitis, and pain. None of these are specific for necrotizing infection, but they're all things that would concern us for the possibility. When ruling out an NSTI, the discordant features are the most important. We look for pain disproportionate to physical findings, edema beyond the margin of erythema, purplish bullae, increasing lactic acidosis, and we would have a higher index of suspicion for an NSTI in patients with hemodynamic compromise. Fortunately, our patient does not have any of these features. His edema is up to the margin of erythema, and he's hemodynamically stable. And while he endorses pain, it sounds like the pain is proportionate to physical findings, which include erythema and some newly forming superficial blisters. So we don't have any red flag features for necrotizing infection, and we don't need a stat surgical consult. Okay, let's quickly touch on DVT as a possibility. The patient doesn't have particular risk factors for DVT. He does have edema, erythema, and leg pain that can result from disruption in venous drainage and inflammatory response to a DVT, but his persistent fevers, lymphangitis, and superficial blisters are not in keeping with a DVT. It doesn't sound like a convincing picture, and really, infectious causes of the appearance seem more likely based on the description of the patient. Okay, so by process of elimination, it sounds like we are most likely dealing with a cellulitis. The patient has diabetes and peripheral arterial disease, which can predispose him. He also has onychomycosis and intertrigo, which are risk factors. The timeline fits. Cellulitis symptoms typically develop over a couple of days before the patient presents the hospital. The clinical course fits. He has systemic infectious features and local symptoms like erythema, edema, pain, warmth, and lymphangitis. And he doesn't really have any clear discordant features. So cellulitis really does seem like it fits in this case. Now let's talk about management. What pathogens would you be concerned about? This is a non-purulent SSTI. There's no abscess, no carbuncle, and no furuncle described. Since our patient is hemodynamically stable, he can be classified as presenting with a moderate cellulitis. He has systemic infectious symptoms with localized inflammatory response. Additionally, there are some classic strep features like lymphangitis and lymphadenopathy. We would worry predominantly about group A, C, or G streptococcus in this patient. Realistically, 
Staphylococcus is far less likely in this setting. And since the patient is hemodynamically stable with no red flag features, we actually could start with just covering beta-hemolytic streptococci. Beta-hemolytic strep, so our group A CNG strep, like we've already said, are universally susceptible to beta-lactams like penicillin. So we could treat this patient with penicillin G, and then step down to oral amoxicillin once we've observed clinical improvement with defervescence and reduction in inflammatory markers, as per our usual oral step-down criteria. Okay, let's fast forward a bit. So you're following up on the patient on day 7 of therapy, and he has been afebrile for the past 5 days. Despite having defervesced, his white blood cells that had come down to 13 have now plateaued and are not decreasing further. His CRP came down to 156 from a peak of 271, but has similarly plateaued. His blisters have popped and there is significant drainage. So question, given the lack of ongoing improvement, would you expand antimicrobial coverage? To answer this, we need to make a suspected diagnosis for his antibiotic non-response. What's your diagnosis for his lack of perceived response? Let's think back to the general AMS podcast. First, we need to characterize the pattern of non-response. Did our patient progressively deteriorate, stagnate with no response to antibiotics whatsoever, or improve and then stagnate? This lets us discern between our three probable causes of a perceived non-response to antibiotics, a non-infectious mimicker, a source control issue, or antibiotic failure. Well, we saw a pretty clear response to antibiotics. He defervesced and his inflammatory markers did significantly decline over the first several days of therapy. They've just stopped declining now. So this suggests we do have an infection present and we can rule out non-infectious mimicker. And because he didn't progressively deteriorate and did actually have that initial response, we aren't worried that we missed the causative bug. So we aren't worried about antibiotic failure either. Right. So just like we talked about in that first podcast, when we have a patient who improves and then stagnates, it usually points to a source control issue. There's no suspected abscess here because this is a non-purulent cellulitis. So this is kind of a sort of source control issue. It's a bit different than what we usually mean by that. It's one we won't manage surgically. It's just an ongoing source of inflammation. When the patient first presented, he had a few blisters. It sounds as though these superficial blisters have progressed somewhat and are popping now. That's in keeping with the expected course for a bullous cellulitis. Right, bullous cellulitis is a cellulitis that blisters and results in pronounced inflammation. You'll see patients respond to antibiotics, just like this patient, but then have a stagnation in inflammatory markers and ongoing pain and erythema, especially when blisters pop. It's important that these patients are managed properly by wound care to soak up the drainage from the blisters to avoid secondary infection. They can still be switched to oral therapy, in this case high-dose amoxicillin, but sometimes need longer courses of antibiotics. However, it can take several weeks for patient's skin to return to normal after an episode of cellulitis, especially bullous cellulitis, and we don't need to continue antibiotics until normalization. So since we know it's a source control issue and we have covered the pathogens well, we wouldn't expand antimicrobial coverage as we do not have signs of failure or a secondary infection. But we would probably want to consult ID as bullous cellulitis has a few extra considerations compared to normal cellulitis. We can still switch the patient who has defervest and had reasonable clinical response to oral amoxicillin. So our podcast take-homes. 1. Skin and soft tissue infections can be divided as non-purulent or purulent. Non-purulent SSTIs like cellulitis are most commonly streptococcal, while purulent SSTIs are more commonly staphylococcal, as a generalization. 2. Cellulitis is an infection of the dermis and subcutaneous fat layers secondary to bacterial translocation following epidermal compromise, while necrotizing infections are toxin-mediated and start deep, with coagulopathy and occlusion of small vessels leading to tissue infarction. 3. Signs and symptoms of cellulitis include edema, erythema, local warmth, lymphangitis, unilateral, leukocytosis, instant onset, tender, antecedent injury, and systemic features, 
and we use our cellulitis acronym as a helpful mnemonic to remember that. Four, we distinguish mild, moderate, and severe cellulitis on the basis of systemic infectious features and rapidity of spread. Mild cellulitis is not accompanied by systemic features of infection and spreads slowly. Moderate cellulitis has systemic features of infection, but is not rapidly progressive, and there's no hemodynamic compromise. Severe cellulitis is associated with hemodynamic compromise and possible rapid expansion. Five, treatment of mild or moderate cellulitis should be targeted to beta-hemolytic streptococci, while treatment of severe cellulitis should be broader and include staphylococcal coverage as well as polymicrobial coverage, in particular while ruling out necrotizing infection. So that concludes our Skin and Soft Tissue Infection podcast, and our next podcast will be on diabetic foot infections.